Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Trevor Culley. Uh, Trevor, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi. As you said, I'm Trevor Culley. I am the host of the History of Persia podcast, uh, where I talk about the history of the ancient Persian empires beginning around uh, their formations in the 700 BC range, going up to about 700 CE, when the last Persian empire fell to the Arab conquest. Got it. Where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I am currently in St. Louis, Missouri. Bit of a different geographic <laughs> and environment. Um, what is your education background? Like what kind of guides you into where you're at now? Uh, I am currently working on a master's uh, in ancient history uh, and did my undergraduate work with history and classic. Uh, and it was in that undergraduate program, I took a religion class where I discovered Zoroastrianism and that led me into the Persian Empire, which is how I wound up here. Can you elaborate on to what Zoroastrian, if I, I'm sure I just butchered that, what that is? Sure. Uh, Zoroastrianism is a religion that is still around today. It's uh, now very small, uh, just about 200,000 practitioners worldwide, I think. But in its heyday, it was the primary religion of ancient Iran and the surrounding area, which means it was the primary religion of the Persian empires. Uh, when I was doing my research on, on that, and as we were kind of discussing briefly, the area and the era that you cover, it's, it's quite vast. There was a number of empires that rose and fell in that time frame. What was, I guess, the... The, the common core of their religions. So Zoroastrianism, broadly speaking, can cover all of the empires in that region, except for the Seleucid Macedonian Empire that came after Alexander the Great. Um, they were Greek through and through for the most part. Zoroastrianism at its core uh, is about is the worship of a god called Ahura Mazda, who is the chief creator god of the whole universe. Uh, but unlike some of the more familiar Abrahamic religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Zoroastrianism pairs that with a dark force uh, called Angramainu or Ariman. And unlike more common or better known religions today, Zoroastrianism attributes the evil things in the universe to that dark side uh, and all good things in the universe to Ahura Mazda and that sort of light and well-ordered and structured part of the universe. Uh, so it's this; it creates this very dualist uh, concept of existence where everything exists somewhere on that spectrum from independent good to independent bad. Kind of like the Eastern Asian religions of the yin and yang and you know, there's, there's where there's light, there's dark and opposites. Um, 
you mentioned Macedonia, I believe, if I heard that correctly. Um, after Alexander the Great, that's predominantly based on Greek and, and Roman, uh, what's the word I want to use, mythology. Kind of the same structure yeah. and belief. Um, unfortunately, unlike a lot of other Greek uh, cultures, the Seleucids didn't leave us with a ton of writing to get a sense of what they were doing. Um, they, you know, we have things referencing Apollo and Zeus and all of the classic Greek mythology figures. They carved a big statue of Hercules next to one of the most famous Persian monuments. But also, it was the time where Greek religion started to mix with all of the religions of the people that Alexander the Great had conquered. So in Egypt, you have Greeks adopting gods like Osiris and Isis. And then in the Middle East, you don't have a lot of interaction with Zoroastrianism, even though it was the religion of the Persians. But they pick up on a lot of the Mesopotamian gods, you know, the people or the beings who were worshipped in Babylon and Assyria. So you have Greek cults to things like Ishtar and Belmarduk, uh, and those stick around into the Roman period. Right. Um, the time frame that you're predominantly studying is pretty much the end of the Iron Age and the beginning of the new era, so to speak. It kind of blends new weaponry, new military strategy, new religions. Um, what type of, or I guess, where are some of the hotspots for archaeologists currently to, to look into the areas that you're speaking of. So it's a archaeology for ancient Persia is a bit of a problem of access. Uh, a lot of the really prominent sites in Iran, where Persia is, the modern Fars province in the south uh, western part of the country, a lot of those most famous sites have been excavated since the late 1800s. So there's still things being found there, and there's still projects going on there. But a lot of what there is to see has been seen. Got it. Uh, but really interesting work is still being done in places like Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. Now, of course, with somewhere like Afghanistan, you have the issue of, you know, parts of the country are an active war zone <laughs> where you want to dig, so you can't. But that's probably the area where there's the most interesting things being found regularly. Uh, there's also, you know, lots of work being done in Egypt and in what's now Turkey, where, you know, they also had some of the biggest cities and therefore there's a lot of archives and a lot of monuments. Trade was a, I'm guessing, a big thing for that particular area, at least from the research side then. What type of um, commodities were they typically trading? Yeah, it's such a huge area that trade covers just about everything. <laughs> uh, there is an inscription from Susa, the one of the Achaemenid, the first Persian Empire's palaces in southwestern Iran, uh, where it lists everything from ivory from India and Africa to you know hardwoods from Arabia and gold from 
Central Asia, and everything in between. Now, some of the flashiest things would be things like gold and bronze uh, or precious stones coming out of Central Asia. But then you also have you know, a giant trade in Greek pots going on on the western coast of the empire. Was it was there a lot of ag- agriculture there, or given the, the terrain of the Middle East, was that kind of stifled? And did they rely, I guess, predominantly on trade to bring in grains and and other types of food? Well, the Middle East twenty five hundred years ago, and even about fifteen hundred years ago, was a different landscape in terms of agriculture. The last 200 years or so have been, you know, modern climate change combined with a historic dry spell for the Middle East, uh, plus uh, irrigation trends and soil nutrients have changed there. So that actually, at the time, the, uh, the Persian empires ruled over some of the most important river valleys in the ancient world. Uh, so there was lots of agriculture, especially in Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq, around the Tigris and Euphrates River. That, mm-hmm. you know, in the Bronze Age, historians sometimes call that the Fertile Crescent, and that really carried over into the Persian period. Uh, they also controlled places at their height, like the Indus Valley and the Nile River. So those were also extremely fertile places that produced lots of food. I think the, the Middle East is is an interesting geographical location because it's literally where effectively three continents kind of come together. You have the northwest or sorry, northeast side of Africa, the south southwestern side of of Asia and the southeastern side of of um Europe. There's in my knowledge of history which isn't as grand as I would like it to be. Um you always read that there's there's ever evolving wars and empires and, you know, here of Alexander the Great's conquests and Caesar's conquests. Um, what kind of impact did that have to the Persian area when say Alexander the Great was kind of on his little, we'll call it rampage. <laughs> well, Alexander in particular is, you know, kind of the war uh, for Persian empires in general, because not only it, you know, he, the thing that makes Alexander great is that he conquered the whole Persian Empire. That was basically everything he did. You know, he went a little bit further into India than the Persians did, but aside from that, he was conquering Persian territory the whole time. So Alexander was remembered forever in Persian history uh, as, you know, A, a conqueror, and B, kind of a destroyer um, in later Persian documents from the Sassanid Persian Empire, the one that fought the Romans uh, as they transitioned to the Byzantines, they were, they called Alexander, Alexander the Accursed, uh, because he was renowned for things like destroying major cities and holy sites, uh, uh, and was accused of destroying holy books, which may or may not have existed at the time, that's a bit of a debate, but uh, He's also remembered as the founder of cities because a lot of cities were either founded or refounded by Alexander as he uh, conquered his way across Western Asia. And that left kind of a positive impact. Uh, 
And there was also always the influence from the Greek occupation after he died. So there's this kind of mixture of Alexander as the accursed and also Alexander as the great because he completely changed the political landscape um, when he died without a successor. So with the the death of Alexander um, and uh, the infighting that went down with, you know, amongst his generals to divide up his land, so to speak, what factions were kind of came out of that? I mean, where, how did the new territories kind of rebuild themselves after his death? So there were three big ones and then a whole bunch of smaller ones. Um, the smaller ones, uh, the most famous is probably the Mithridates uh, of Pontus was an Iranian general, uh, somehow connected to the Persian royal family, who managed to carve out a little chunk of what's now uh, northeastern Turkey and held it as his own kingdom until the Romans showed up um, and they fought some very famous wars. The big ones were uh, Seleucus, who took over most of the Persian Empire, all of the territory in Central Asia where you you have... Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, all of those places. Uh, and then you have, uh, and he you know, had out to India and up to the area of modern Syria, at which point you run into uh, Ptolemy, who took over mostly just Egypt and a little bit of the area around what's now Israel and Jordan. Mm. Uh, and then in the Northeast, uh, one of his generals named Antigonus was the one who ultimately ended up with Greece and Macedon and most of Anatolia, modern Turkey. Uh, And so those three kind of formed the big three kingdoms for the next 200 years or so. And in that time frame, that triangle around southern Turkey, northern Syria today was the site of a lot of wars. You have about six Syrian wars between the descendants of Seleucus and the descendants of Ptolemy. And that region went back and forth between them a few times. And out of stuff like that, you get things like the first independent Jewish kingdom in almost 500 years. Which was? Uh, the They call it the Hasmonean kingdom, and it came out of the Maccabean re- revolt. So if you're Catholic, you probably have a couple books called Maccabees in your Bible. Uh, And those tell the story of that revolt where um, they were ruled by the Seleucids at that point, and they threw them off and established an independent kingdom uh, that was kind of the height of Jewish monarchy after the Old Testament. Got it. Um, And the the story of that revolt is also, as it happens, the origin of Hanukkah. Okay. That brings us up to around 247 BCE, which um, one of my researchers says the Parthians overthrew this. I'm going to butcher the name again. uh, The Seculids. Does that sound correct? The Seleucids, yeah. Seleucids. Uh, So the Parthians were a Central Asian tribe uh, originally. Well, they weren't originally the Parthians. I should start with that. They were a Central Asian tribe called the Parni, who, you know, we could probably lump them in with 
Scythians as a broader group. Uh, you know, those kind of people up on the Eurasian steppe riding horses, uh, semi-nomadic for most of the time. But then this one group comes in and they conquer a region called Parthia. And Parthia had recently seceded from the Seleucid Empire. Um, and when these northern Iranian nomads come in and conquer Parthia, they kind of assimilate, but they become the ruling class. And from there, over the next hundred or so years, from about 270 to 170, the Parthians push in and out of Seleucid territory over and over again until they take over most of the Seleucid Empire. While the Parthians are doing that, these new upstarts from way out west that nobody had ever heard of called the Romans uh, were showing up for the first time, and they started eating away at the Seleucid Empire's eastern territory. Uh, so the Parthians ended up basically conquering between modern Afghanistan and the Hindu Kush mountains out to the Euphrates River in modern Syria. And that established the border that would be the Roman and Parthian border and then the Roman and Persian border uh, until the 7th century. So there were um, the one group you were speaking of. They're kind of like the precursors to where Genghis Khan came from, you know, roughly 1,000 to 1,200 years later, correct? Yeah, in a way. Um, yeah. And the, at this really early point, you have the Scythians between, you know, kind of modern Ukraine out to, you know, Kazakhstan and the Ural Mountains. And they're speaking languages that are, you know, broadly considered Iranian. They're related to modern Farsi. And then east of that, you have people speaking Turkic languages and Mongol languages. And around the time that the Parthians are conquering the Seleucid Empire, you start having groups from out east pushing west. Um, and over time, you get this snowball effect of more groups migrating and changing and, you know, dominating other groups uh, and that's where you get groups like the Huns and then later on the Mongols. Got it. It seems that throughout history, the bigger the empire, they have a hard time maintaining their control because they start losing little battles that turn into bigger battles that turn into bigger battles. But it's not just on one front. It's on all sides of their empires. Um, what... Speaking about that, I mean, strategy and and the weaponry that they had, you know, at the beginning of, or the end of the Iron Age, rather, you had Xerxes was one of the premier emperors from Persia. Um, what can you tell me about the Immortals and his, his elite fighters? So... Uh, Xerxes was one of the Achaemenid kings, and obviously he's the one who famously invaded and didn't conquer Greece. Um, the, the standing army of the Persian Empire is probably the group that Herodotus, the Greek historian, called the Immortals. Uh, you know, literally 
anathanatos, meaning, you know, the people who do not die. Uh, and he, they called them that because supposedly this was a standing core of 10,000 sold, professional soldiers who, whenever one of them died in battle, they would immediately be replaced by someone from the wider conscripted army. The thing about the Persian army is that we really don't know a ton about them, especially in that early Achaemenid period. Um, Literally, the first academic book on the Persian army uh, in English was published like three months ago. Uh, there's never before that there had never been a full-length book dealing with that subject so it's kind of new ground to really dig into it academically got it we know that they uh, were heavily biased towards archery um, and had a really strong cavalry force so you'd have thousands of infantry with bows um, all lined up behind you know several r- ranks of shields that would, you know, hold up their shields to protect the people behind them from incoming archers from the other side. Uh, And they didn't wear a lot of armor. You know, it's up for debate if they even wore helmets at all. You never see anybody wearing helmets in artwork that depicts Persian soldiers, but occasionally we find uh, helmets on battlefields, and it's the most simple piece of armor that everybody in the ancient world wore, so you you think they must have had them, but you never see pictures of it. So even their equipment is a subject of a lot of debate. Uh, and when they went to Greece, you know, this tactic didn't work because Greek landscape is you know, a pretty rough terrain. There's not a lot of room to spread out huge armies over huge swaths of land like you have in the open plains of Syria and Iraq. And that really compromised Persian tactics. You know, an army that's designed around having thousands of archers across a field from one another doesn't work when the other side's plan is to charge at your, at your battle line from the outset. Right. So you have this kind of clash of tactical mindsets. Uh, and you see the Persian army change as a result. You know, after the war in Greece, Persian soldiers and art start being depicted uh, with more armor on, you know, especially the cavalry, you start to see the beginnings of heavy cavalry. Up to this point, nobody had really put a lot of people in armor on horses, but then you start to see, you know, people in full-body chainmail on horseback in paintings from after that period. So there are responses to it, and there's more evidence that they started picking up on the Greek style of shield and the, you know, getting longer spears. Uh, because supposedly that was a problem they had in Greece, is that their spears were two or three feet shorter than the Greek spears. So they had to get two or three feet past the front of the Greek spear points to even have an effect. Right. And all of that kind of contributes to why Greece in particular was such a famous defeat for them. That and the Greeks were the one writing all the history. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> history is written by the victors, correct? Um, so... From, I mean, that we, everybody probably knows 300 is about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, you know, it's obviously sensationalized. Uh, there's a lot of things. That, and as you point out, you know, history is seen through the scope of the people who, who won. So they get to dictate what 
became truth. Um, and it's hard to, to dispute that. One, as you pointed out, there's there's very little scripture or books or anything, which you know later around the time the Khan, uh, yeah, Genghis Khan and them raided the Middle East, you know, he was just a wrecking ball. And I would love to know how much technology would be different not only technology, but religion and philosophy and just human nature or human life would be different if a lot of what Genghis Khan destroyed hadn't been destroyed. Because you know, from what I understand, the, the Middle East was a hotbed for um, technological and, and intellectual development until Khan came through and kind of decimated everything. Military life for the people of that era and, and that time frame, it seemed to be a part of their life. Um, from what I read, they started at the age of five training and pretty much it was a lifelong thing that they could be called to. Can you expand upon upon that a little bit? Yeah, so that's the you know, the upper, cl- upper class. Those are the nobles who are going to form you know, mostly the cavalry, you know, they're the people who can afford to keep and maintain horses. Uh, and also a corps of a thousand infantry referred to as the spear bearers. And they were pulled from the upper class and kind of acted as both the royal bodyguard and the best equipped and best trained of the army. And yeah, so they... The idea of start training at five is that uh, the Persians were descended from, uh, you know, steppe nomads themselves. You know, one of the many, many waves of people that came down out of Central Asia into modern Iran. Uh, so they had a very long history and tradition of, you know, training for battle and, you know, just life on horseback from a young age. So. Uh, young Persians, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, were trained to ride, use a bow, and tell the truth. And obviously, riding and using a bow have martial military uh, practice. And to tell the truth is a reference to Zoroastrian religion, which dictated that uh, a word called asha uh, is usually translated as truth, but really means something more in the idea of cosmic order, you know, the right way for the world to work. And that's what is meant most of the time when talking about truth in ancient Persia is this divine concept of the right way to be. Uh, On the military side of things, yeah, they would train from... Five until 25 as training. After the age of 25, Persian nobles were considered full adults, at which point, you know, they'd receive either political appointments or military commands or, you know, be drafted into that uh, group of spear bearers, like I said. And by training lifelong like that, you then have this really well-trained professional core to serve as the backbone of your military. There seems to be that recurring theme in a lot of the civilizations around this, in this time period that 
you know, military life was the life because of the number of battles and, and you know, the whole idea of, of conquering and expansion and, you know, the perpetual wars that went on. For the people that weren't nobles, I'm guessing they were the ones that were your, your traders, your farmers, and, you know, keeping the cities going, so to speak. Would that be safe to say? Yeah. Uh, you know, there were maybe a million Persians to about 35 million everybody else. Uh, and the nobles across the entire region would have cultural differences of different sorts. You know, Egyptians were stereotyped as more academic. Uh, even the lower class people in Central Asia, the step characterized as being really warlike. But in general, most people wouldn't have formal military training. Uh, you know, as the elite in, so in ancient society, it was really good to have the strongest parts of the army be on your side right. because that's how you control everybody. But most of the population of the empire would have been farmers, you know, small landowning or, you know, land renting in an almost feudal situation farm air. There seems to be kind of like a, at least the timelines that I've found there, things seem to kind of stop being so full of war and, and battling um, from about the third century CE to about the seventh century. Um, and that's kind of when the Muslim armies really started kind of, and seems to be imposing the wheel on the region. How much of an influence or did, the Muslim empire start out? I mean, was that just like a little faction just kind of slowly chipped away or did they kind of come in just a massive wave? Well, um, first I want to say that uh, that third to seventh century uh, was calmer in the West, uh, but the Persian empire was busy uh, in Central Asia because that's when you have groups like the Huns showing up for the first time and tearing away a huge chunk of their northeastern territory. So the Persian Empire was engaged pretty much constantly in that period, as was Rome. They just weren't fighting each other. Got it. Uh, and at the very end of that period, you get this massive war between the Romans and the Persians, uh, and it lasts for almost 20 years. The Persians conquer all the way out to Egypt for the first time since Alexander the Great, and they're at the gates of Constantinople uh, when they're finally turned back, and uh, the Roman Byzantine emperor reaches out to the steppe nomads, and they come in on the Persians from both sides to push them back. And this leaves both sides and both armies completely wiped out. After 20 years of fighting, you lose a generation, basically. Right. right. Uh, and to top things off, in Persia, not only did they lose their army, but uh, the king was assassinated after losing the war. Which, which king was that? Which destabilized... Uh, that was uh, Kusro. Um, and it destabilizes the empire for uh, about a decade, you know, as 
they cycle through different heirs and claimants to the throne until you settle on uh, a kid at that time, you know, a young teenager named Yazdegerd III. And he's going to be the last Persian empire or the last Persian emperor. Got it. While this is going on, you have uh, the beginnings of Islam in Arabia. Right around the time that war was ending, the prophet Muhammad was starting his preaching and his prophecy. And for a, you know most of Muhammad's life, it stays secluded to Arabia. At first, the Muslims are a persecuted group. They have to flee to Ethiopia briefly um, before returning to Arabia. Uh, and you, that's where you get the Hajj uh, and Muhammad's return from Medina to Mecca. After that, once Muhammad has that base in the cities of Western Arabia, the Muslims spend, under Muhammad, a couple decades conquering in the mid-600s, just unifying the different tribes and kingdoms in Arabia. Uh, part of that would have been their first conflict with nominally the Persian Empire. Um, at that time, Yemen was ruled by a group of Persians. Um, they were loosely affiliated with the main empire. They had kind of been left to their own devices for a few years with everything that was happening back in the north. But that would have been the first conflict between Islam and Persians. But for the most part, uh, you don't have a ton of conflict in the north on the border with Persia until uh, the 650s. Got it. So, and it, But once they get there, they steamroll right through. They face you know one real battle of organized resistance, uh, and Yazdegerd III you know, takes his entourage and starts fleeing northeast, ironically following basically the same route that Darius III did when he was running from Alexander. Got it. So they left the Middle East, they left Persia, Iran area they actually really retreated into north uh northwest africa and stood there until they kind of i guess recollect themselves um did they there was a little bit of discussion about the navy and and what the purpose of navy was um i don't believe that it's obviously not to the capacity that we know a navy as but you know the use of ships to carry troops from point a to point b um was there a lot of warring on the water, so to speak, during this time? There was, um, there was in the first Persian Empire, you know, the ones who fought with the Greeks, because they were the only t time the Persians really extended their power out to the Mediterranean. Uh, and when they controlled that whole coastline, they controlled the entire eastern edge from... Uh, you know, the modern Balkans all the way in a kind of semicircle down to Egypt. And, you know, a big part of the wars with Greece was always naval battles. Got it. Uh, and naval tactics at the time were mostly about ramming. You know, ships would have these big bronze rams on the front to push, punch a hole in other ships so that they would sink. Or 
you know, hooking another ship and forcing them uh, to basically have a land battle with you on the water. You, know, you would send your Marines over with spears and swords, and they would fight their guys with spears and swords on the deck of the ship. After that, when you get into the later Persian empires like the Parthians and the Sassanids, they did have a navy because they were on the Persian Gulf um, and had lots of trade with Arabia and Ethiopia and India in the Indian Ocean. But there's not a lot written about any naval conflict in that region. There were some amphibious landings where uh, Arab tribes on the eastern coast of Arabia would raid into Persian territory and the Persians would raid them back. But any major warfare, they would march a land army around through the desert. Kind of a tit-for-tat thing. Was there um, was there a lot of piracy back that, at that time or not really spoken of? Again, uh, it's kind of unclear, especially in the Indian Ocean, because that was a really rich trade route and there were a lot of isolated areas. So it's the perfect area for there to be piracy. We just don't have a lot of writing from any of those cultures at that time describing it. Um, you know, like I said, you have these Arab groups that would raid across, and that was kind of a form of piracy. But a lot of piracy, you know, things we would t talk about as piracy today were kind of state-sponsored in the ancient world, and it's kind of continued up into you know the golden age of piracy with privateers Here's and buccaneers, some... people like right. Francis Drake, who you know were sponsored by the English crown. But you had stuff like that in the ancient world too. Um, right at the beginning of the Persian Empire, there was the a Greek island called Samos, uh, and the ruler of that island was a guy called Polycrates, and he was at the time positioned to kind of take over the Eastern Mediterranean. You know, he didn't directly rule, but ruled through fear and intimidation and piracy over most of those islands, um, and. When the Persians showed up, he saw which way the wind was blowing and nominally sided with them. But when he wasn't convenient for them and he, you know, continued raiding, shipping out of Persian territory, that's when they conquered his island. <laughs> Use him for when he's useful and then discard him. It seems what a lot of empires do. Um, what are some of the more, I guess, fascinating things have you found in, in your research that are maybe myths that have been, that you've debunked from your research? If anything comes to mind. So, <laughs> um, you know, some of the biggest myth busting that anybody who deals with classical Greece at all ends up doing is dealing with Sparta. You know, Sparta has this famous reputation as the greatest warriors and, the most professional army in ancient Greece. And in reality, one, they weren't nearly, they didn't have the track record that popular culture gives them. You know, their most famous battle is Thermopylae, where they lost. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they won a big war against Athens, but they lost a bunch of battles in that war, and Athens lost a bunch of battles in that war. Uh, and then they fought a war with Corinth, and they won a bunch of battles in that war, but ultimately they lost. They're just, they were just another army. Right. The difference is they had a full-time fighting force to oppress their massive slave population. 
know, and that's another thing you don't get in 300. They're talking all about freedom this whole time, but they have most of the Peloponnese Peninsula in Greece enslaved under the Spartans as this very small ruling minority over a much larger population that is usually completely disarmed and forced to meet the Spartan labor and farming needs while the Spartans are um, the land-holding class. And not warring. Where were these slaves typically from? Is it just because they, did they actively go out and, and for lack of a better term, you know, capture people and bring them as slaves? Or were they kind of just, did they become slaves because they took over their land? It was because they took over their land. This is a group uh, traditionally called the Helots. Uh, and historians, I think, like to call them that because it saves them from having to go into a really detailed debate over what constitutes a slave versus a serf versus just a peasant. <laughs> um, they were owned by the Spartans, but they were owned in conjunction with the land they lived on. And when we talk about that with medieval Europe and, you know, Russia up to like the 1900s, that we call that serfdom, but the Greeks always characterized them as slaves when using a word other than helot. So it gets into some semantics, which is, I think, why we use that word. Yeah, it sounds like splitting hairs. Anytime you, you rule people and they don't have the freedoms to pick up and leave or to kind of conduct themselves as they wish. It's, it's, it's a form of slavery. So it's, it's interesting. I, I didn't know that that was kind of <laughs> how the Spartans were able to maintain their professional quote unquote, uh, military. Um, I've appreciate the time and the knowledge you gave me. Um, I'm going to, shift gears to the handful of questions that I like to ask at the end of my show, just to kind of lighten things up and see what kind of responses we get from random weird questions. Uh, the first question I will throw at you is, would you allow your body to host an alien species until it was born or live with a parasite forever? I mean, doesn't that depend on the parasite? Yeah. You know, <laughs> if it's, it, yeah, if it's like, uh, I read about a, a thing that makes you, you want to take care of your cats more. You know, it's a parrot, it's a brain parasite uh, that you know, is found in cat litter that you want, that makes you want to care more for your cats. And like, that seems fine to me, but you know, if it's going to kill me before I turn 40, then maybe I don't want that. Um, maybe if, if that's the case, then I'd rather just, you know, let the alien hatch inside me and then get out. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I agree with that. It depends on what the parasite is. Um, although everybody knows the scene from Alien and the gut buster. That's scene. fair. So, I mean, if it's going to kill me sooner than later, um, I think I would have to say it depends. <laughs> um, second question. Would you rather... Win a vacation or money from a raffle ticket? Mm. So, like, I should want to win the money because I can use money for more things. But I think I'd rather win the vacation because that forces me to spend the money on the vacation. <laughs> Agreed. I, I think my problem with winning anything 
of monetary value that's not money itself is there's usually hidden costs. So I would rather just take the money and do it as I wish with it. And the last question, would you rather face a nuclear winter or an alien invasion? Uh, alien invasion. Fewer overall risks to my health from just aliens being there than ambient radiation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, I'd rather take the possibility of living the alien invasion as opposed to uh, definitively dying a probably very horrific death from fallout. So um, why don't you tell people where they can find your show and follow you? Sure. Like I said at the top, uh, I host the History of Persia podcast, so you can find that at historyofpersiapodcast.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Uh, if you want to find me on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, it's History of Persia podcast, and on Twitter, it's just History of Persia. And if you happen to bump into me somewhere else on the internet, I'm usually under a name that I'm somewhat recognizable. Well, I thank you very much for your time and, and your knowledge and uh, stay healthy. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.